Don't you think? He smiled. That my lack of faith makes such a trance pointless. No, I don't. And do you know why? No. Nenaki leaned over and looked him in the eyes, with a strange smile on her pale lips. Because it would be the first proof I've ever heard of that a lack of faith has any kind of power at all. By the way, one of my favorite quotes from the entire book. That is such a good line. I agree. <laughs> I love that line. And the theme of the whole book, one of the big themes. <laughs> That's true. That is true. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the podcast of Surprise. I'm super excited to be here. I hope you're all having a fantastic week so far. And I'm joined by my amazing co-host today. We're really excited to be finishing off The Last Wish. We're going to be uh, discussing The Voice of Reason, our last analysis, our last short story, guys. But without further ado, before we get into the discussion, I would like to introduce my co-host, Mikal and Aziz. What's going on, Mikal? Hey, not too much. Glad to be here. Really excited that we finished book one. <laughs> we survived. <laughs> We're still here. <laughs> Carol the Witcher is sleeping, recovering from that nasty neck wound given to him by the Striga in the very first story. In comes Iola, a young and promising acolyte priestess who has taken a vow of silence. She wants to sleep with Geralt, and as he often does with a woman interested in him that isn't Yennefer, he readily accepts, but thinks of Yennefer. With shame, he realized he felt resentment towards her. Resentment that she had remained a dream, and that he would never forgive himself for it. Neneke, high priestess of Melatelli, enters the room, and Geralt worries he's gotten the girl in trouble. But this is perhaps projection of his guilt, Neneke reminds him what he already knows. Fool, the priestess snorted, you've forgotten where you are. This is neither a hermitage nor a convent. It's Melitola's temple. Our goddess doesn't forbid our priestesses anything. Almost. She tells Geralt of Iola's vow of silence, but gently mocks him for wanting an explanation that he wouldn't understand anyway, given his negative views on religion and faith. She also questions him on how he could be so slow as to allow an ordinary striga to nearly kill him. In his mind, the wound was almost healed when he arrived, but Neneke's treatment weakened him. He doesn't question this, assuming that perhaps without her, his neck would not have healed properly. He holds her in very high esteem and visits once or twice a year, but Neneke is trying to get him to stay at the temple for longer this time. She tells him not to fight any agile opponents for a while, that it will take months for him to properly recover. He laments that he can't go that long without working, though it occurs to me that she's not charging him for his stay, so it sounds like he can wait that long. But anyway, Neneke very much wants Geralt to be put under a trance. She brings it up for what is not the first time. She senses something about him, but he's very much against it, playing it off as a waste of time, saying he'd be happy to confide in her about what he's been up to, but insistent that it isn't anything out of the ordinary for a witcher. Neneke knows this isn't true because she knows about Yennefer and Geralt's relationship, that it's anything but ordinary. So there's something more, and we know for certain that the events in A Question of Price were extraordinary, to say the least. It seems Nanaki is sensing the child of surprise and the destiny associated with that fateful commitment, but she doesn't know the specifics. If Geralt were to go under trance, the secret would very likely come out, if not other things. In general, he just doesn't want to do it. The next we see some knights from the Order of the White Rose have arrived, and they are very uppity indeed. It seems their patron duke or prince, here word, depending on who you ask, is exerting his authority. These two knights seem quite intent on exerting theirs as well. They want Geralt to leave. Now. This is the kingdom of Temeria, ruled by King Foltest, and at this time his heir is, well, a girl only recently transformed from a striga. 
The nobility are not exactly comfortable with this, one can surmise. And let's not forget, Foltest has no other children. So this Duke Hereward, by calling himself prince, is perhaps angling towards becoming heir to Temeria or something like that. Despite, as Nanaki points out, his lack of royal blood. Titles aside, there's a problem with the order's orders. In this temple, I give the orders, interrupted Nanaki in a cold, authoritative voice. I usually try to ensure my orders don't conflict too much with Herald's politics, as far as those politics are logical and understandable. In this case, they are irrational, so I won't treat them any more seriously than they deserve. Geralt, Witcher of Rivia, is my guest. His stay is a pleasure to me, so he will stay in my temple for as long as he wishes. The younger but more uppity knight turns as red as his cloak, and arguments and threats begin to fly. The knight, reminding her of the strength and dignity of his order, while she points out the dangers of going against the temple's popularity and reminds him that she delivered him when he was born. Geralt plays ambassador, saying it's not to worry over, that he's planning on leaving in only three days anyway, and surely that will suffice. But he is wrong and knows it before the older knight responds because the witcher sees his eyes and they are full of hate. So much so that he considers that it might be these men and not the duke who wants him gone after all. And perhaps they are used to getting what they want. It turns out the younger knight is one of the Duke's favorites. The issue is pushed further, but Nenneke won't back down. The younger knight's voice breaks into falsetto as he takes offense and begins to berate her. Geralt is far more willing to take insults on his own person than he is to see them aimed at Nenneke and adopts a threatening tone instead of his former conciliatory one. He insults the order, claiming all as it takes is money to get in. Tailies, his hands shaking pulled an iron gauntlet from his belt, and with a crash threw it to the ground at the witch's feet. I'll wash away the insult to the order with your blood, mutant, he yelled. On beaten ground, go into the yard. You've dropped something, son, Nenneke said calmly. So pick it up. We don't leave rubbish here. The knights leave, but promise to return. Later, Geralt sits alone with Iola and speaks to her as if to a therapist. He tells her of his beliefs, how his faith resides in the sword. He tells her of how his swords are made and of his relentless training, how he considers his mentor his father because he doesn't know much about his own birth parents, that he was exceptional in surviving the mutations caused by the trial of the grasses, that eldritch and painful process that turns boys to witchers. So, of course, they pushed him harder and gave him and the few others who made it this far ever more. They were worse, much worse. But as you see, I survived. The only one to live out of all those chosen for further trials. My hair's been white ever since. Total loss of pigmentation. A side effect, they say. A trifle. He describes his first encounter after finishing his training that he was eager to slay monsters. He came across a gang and slew their leader as he was assaulting a young girl. The rest ran off, but instead of thanks, she threw up, then fainted when he got closer. That taught him a lesson. He didn't get close anymore and he stuck to killing literal monsters, until Blaviken. Then, Eola reaches to touch him, and he quickly pulls away. Don't touch me. It might... you might see. And I don't want you to. I don't want to know. I know my fate whirls about me like water in a weir. It's hard on my heels, following my tracks, but I never look back. He admits that it is indeed Sintra that Nanaki is sensing that the child must have been born by now, and that her birthday, like Yennefer's, would be around Beltane. He knows fate is drawing him south, but he doesn't want to admit it and doesn't want to know what he will do. Knowing the future is no boon, no advantage at all. 
The next we see Geralt is reading a well-known history book and Dandelion arrives for a visit. He'd heard about the Striga and that Geralt was wounded and knew that he'd come to the temple to heal up. They proceed to drink some booze together and philosophize. It's a wonderful conversation about how things change, how values change, and how in particular Geralt's profession has changed as a result of those larger civilization-level forces at work. Dandelion points out very aptly that witchers are slowly putting themselves out of business by doing a good job. This land had to be taken from them bit by bit, every valley, every mountain pass, every forest, and every meadow. And we didn't manage that without the invaluable help of witches. But those times have gone, Geralt, irrevocably gone. The Baron won't allow a fork tail to be killed because it's the last dracomage for a thousand miles, no longer gives rise to fear, but rather to compassion and nostalgia for times past. However, he says, this is not true everywhere. Many places where humans live have great need of witchers still, and will so for quite a long time. He suggests they head south together. Geralt, of course, is against that and makes his excuses. That would be looking back, which he claims to not do. The south, after all, is Sintra and Sodden Hill. Dandelion, unaware of any of this about the south, Sintra, or the Child of Surprise, moves on to reminiscing about their first adventure together, which was not in the south. The next we see, Geralt is chatting with Nenehi again, this time inside a fascinating cave or grotto designed to grow rare specimens of plant and moss and such. She corners him again about leaving, guessing correctly that he's worried Yennefer will show up, as she does at the temple from time to time. Nenehi tells him that he doesn't know her as well as she thinks he does, or women in general. They discuss that sorceresses cannot conceive children, and Nenehi says Yennefer is no exception in regards to reversing the damage done to her reproductive system which Geralt struggles to accept. She also tells him he needs to stay longer. He's slow, wounded, and distracted. The therapy was doing him good, and he needs more. She continues to push for the trance and for him to stay, but he still won't do either. She settles instead on hearing how Geralt and Yennefer met. The witcher smiled. It started with me and Dandelion not having anything for breakfast and deciding to catch some fish. Am I to understand that instead of fish, you caught Yennefer? (laughs) As they leave... He asks her to confirm that in this room are plants that no longer grow anywhere else. She confirms it's so and that this is due to changes to the environment and the sun's rays. The crystal roof blocks those harmful rays, confirming that the cave that they're in is essentially a greenhouse. Geralt is outside the temple with Dandelion shortly afterwards, and oops, not only do we have the two knights, but a dwarf named Dennis Cranmer, captain of the Duke's guards and a real stickler for the rules. And the rules are not very friendly. Geralt must duel... Tallies, Tyes, Tal, Tai, and must not strike the young knight or else be hanged. They want the knight to be able to claim he defeated a witcher. They tell him he has no choice. Geralt reminds them that he does have a choice after all. <laughs> Dennis Cranmer takes his meaning and rather than meets Geralt's threat with bravado, he reminds him of Blaviken and asks if he wants a repeat of that on his conscience. He does not and instead accepts the duel. Dennis Cranmer's bearing has convinced Geralt that he does in fact have yet another way out. By hitting Tyus's sword back into his own face, he wins on a technicality, having not actually struck the knight directly. Nevertheless, wisdom dictates they not press the issue. It's time to go. They have to stop by the temple to get their things, and Geralt asks Dandelion to keep quiet about what just happened. As he's saying his farewells to Neneke, Eola comes forth bearing a small chest filled with witcher elixirs and medicines for him. She has the urge to speak, to break her vow, but does not. As she hands the chest to him, their hands brush and... Blood, blood, blood. 
bones like broken white sticks, tendons like whitish cords exploding from beneath cracking skin, cut by enormous paws bristling with thorns and sharp teeth, the hideous sound of torn flesh and shouting, shameless and horrifying in its shamelessness, the shamelessness of the end, of death, blood and shouting, shouting, blood, shouting, Yola! It's a trance. Nenaki yells for her to speak of what's happening despite her vow, but she does not, and the convulsions continue. She casts a spell, and Geralt feels through his medallion that it is a powerful one. The other girls carry her away, and Nenaki says she will be with them in a moment to provide further aid. She's hopeful this incident will change Geralt's mind, but it does not. He's determined to leave, and again, to not look over his shoulder. However, he's clearly affected by what's happened, as indicated by his sweaty palms. Mother Nenneke, venerable one, wipes away a tear as they part, perhaps wondering if she will ever see him again. Geralt and Dandelion head south. So, really, really interesting story, question mark? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, one thing that's really interesting about the voice of reason that I that I love about it is the chapter's voice of reason are kind of the frame of the story. And we get all the short stories since we're at the end now. And that's kind of Geralt recounting his journeys and uh, and his time across the continent. What were your what were your impressions of the voice of reason story question mark? Um I mean I, I like <laughs> this more on reread. I think the first time I read it I was I was more interested in this plot line than I was in in the like ongoing stories. And I was kind of like, okay, let's get back to the to the main plot. And then kind of once you, you look at it overall, you kind of see how it all plays out. I don't know if it is a story, as, as Kyle suggested, because, I mean, it does have theme and it does have consistent character, but it is also kind of there to do the whole, like, harp music in the background. And then one time I... You know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know what it kind of feels like? It feels kind of more like someone going to a wellness retreat. You know what I mean? And it's kind of like disassociated thoughts from different times. He keeps on going back to this wellness center to kind of heal his wounds. And because we know that witchers have very dangerous jobs, obviously. And that's what it kind of feels like to me is like Gerald's kind of refreshing there. He's refreshing his physical self and also his mental self. And Nenaki and the others are kind of trying to help him. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. And I think the three of us somewhat agreed that reading it as a whole separately really m makes it a lot stronger. I, I wouldn't say it's super strong, but it's very fun and it's very important. The story elements are certainly not the strongest parts. It's not a, the plot is the weakest part, but it's got great dialogue, really good lore. And it's got Dandelion and, and Geralt together. And it's got Nenaki. Yeah, the characters are excellent and the dialogue it's is more excellent. So, more so yeah. focus on the characters as as opposed to like the plot, like the the fairy tale short stories. Yeah. One thing that I do want to point out that Aziz did for everyone, and it's really awesome. You can go to uh, the Facebook page, the podcast is surprised, and Aziz actually made a document and he put everything in order and read it into a, a Google document for everyone to share. So if you want to read it like that, because it is kind of hard going through all the different pages. <laughs> unique and I guess Sapkowski does not give a fuck way to start a series. Do you know what I mean? Like he doesn't care. I think I actually cracked up 
the first time I started reading it because it was like, everybody was yeah. like, you gotta read these books. They're so great. Oh my God, you're gonna love them. The female characters are awesome. And it starts with, nameless woman rubs her breasts over Carol's face. <laughs> and I was just like, okay. <laughs> um, but then, then in the next one, you get Nedeke and it's like, oh, okay. Hang on, I'm confused. <laughs> like, which which way are we going here? And I mean, Neneke, in my opinion, is like an MVP of the whole of the whole series. Like, she's she's just so fantastic. <laughs> Trauma is a theme. Love being apart from someone that you love, uh, and we know that obviously that you know the TV show they're kind of doing the the three POV thing with Yennefer, Siri, and, and Geralt. But this is kind of more of a Geralt centric book, right? And then we get more into the other stuff, and this is kind of a, a little bit of a like a, a tease forward to some of the stuff that we're going to expect because Iola has premonitions that death is going to follow Geralt because of the quest and his destiny and all of the stuff that he's going to experience in the future. And this is kind of like the origin story of us kind of getting to understand Geralt's past and before we really move into the main plot, I guess. I think that's a great way to put it, yeah, because you're right that it's the story is much stronger overall when all these characters are present and they're not all there yeah. yet. Like, we don't even have Siri. Yennefer has been in one story so far and she's about to, her presence is about to, you know, jump up quite a lot uh, the next mm. batch of stories and then even more in the main series. So that's really good. Yeah, so this story is more of like getting us set. It's it's necessary groundwork. Uh, it helps set the chronology. It's kind of interesting to realize we just read seven stories and the first one was the most recent one. <laughs> so it is like, oh, well, I wasn't able to find exactly when The Voice of Reason was published. I think it was 1993. I think it was written for The Last Wish to, to connect all those stories. So I don't, I don't think it existed prior to that, which would make sense. Uh, so yeah, 1993, and meanwhile, the first Witcher story, uh, The Witcher, was 1986. So I guess it was about a seven-year gap <laughs> between them. Something I will say about The Voice of Reason is I think it definitely raises the stakes of, of the stories collectively. It's not just he meets this Lady Yennefer and like, oh my God, they have this great connection in the end. We lead up to that with the impact of their relationship and, and, and the aftershocks of it. And then we, you know, we follow the impact of it after. And I think the same thing, the fact that Blaviken comes back is very important to Geralt's decision in that, in that final section. You, you, you mentioned Blaviken, Mikhail, and one of the main things that we're going to talk about for themes today is faith. Geralt's faith is tested in humanity, the things that he experiences. He experiences all these traumas. He has to sacrifice Renfrey, right? We see this early on in the lesser evil. He's going to the temple to get fixed for these physical injuries, like the injury to his neck and stuff like that. We see the physical toll that all of these journeys have taken on Geralt and his traumas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it sounds like Neneke understands that it's not just physical, that that's something. Yeah. Like she talks about how he's a little slower, that something's on his mind. And she, that's why she brings up Yennefer, because she thinks that's like maybe part of it. And it is part of it, but... It's also this whole stuff with Siri. Of course, he doesn't even know it's Siri. It's just the child. He has no idea even whether it's a boy or girl or anything. It's making him question his faith a bit because it's, well, maybe this is something to have faith over. Uh, it is certainly a destiny. It's not just random. It's not just, I'm going to go out in the world and continue to be a witcher. No, there's more to it now. No, I, th I think you could even say that like the two pain points, the main pain points that Geralt has 
in this, in, in the voice of reason kind of spring from faithlessness, like be like not being faithful. I, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I still don't think we know exactly what happened, like why Gerald and Yennefer broke up that first time, but like, he definitely left her. And like, that's something that he's, he's never going to live down to be honest. But, <laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> But like, we get that here and, and Nenaki's like, you behaves like a child, you know, you, you abandoned her or whatever. And then the same thing, he he's breaking his promise to go back to Sintra. And like, I, I wonder if that plays into the idea of like, why, why he's so resistant to responding to a, a point of faith, because he very practically, like forget like spiritual things, he's, he's very practically has been lacking in, in faith. I think it actually leads to kind of the abandonment issue, his mother giving him up to be a witcher. I never wanted this. You know what I mean? And I think Geralt has that fear. If he enters a relationship with someone, he's going to lose them because of his professions. And I think Geralt feels some sadness because of that, because he is lonely. He is by himself most of the time. And he does want more. I think he does want more than that. He knows that, but he's afraid to make that commitment because he's afraid to lose that. And he regrets it too. He remember thinking about what he went through. He's like, what was I thinking? He laments making the choice he did in Blaviken, but also he doesn't understand himself why he made that move during the question of price. Like, why did I tie myself to this? What was I thinking? Why do I want to make another Witcher? Why, you know, it's it's not such a great life. (laughs) So yeah, he's very conflicted over what he's done. And I think that's super interesting. Regret is said to be a wicked thing. Yeah. It's something that is really hard. I, I have a lot of regret in my life, and that's something that I toggle with every day. I'm like, oh, I wish I could have done that better, you know? Regret is a wicked thing, for sure. No one can help her. It's impossible. She's a sorceress. Like most female magicians, her ovaries are atrophied, and it's irreversible. She'll never be able to have children. Not all sorceresses are handicapped in this respect. I know something about that, and you do too. Nanaki closed her eyes. Yes, I do. I'd like to hear Mikhail's thoughts on Geralt's mansplaining. <laughs> well, yeah. I was a little bit like in that conversation, like Geralt, you know, he, and he's just like, you know, Nanaki's like, it's impossible. And he's like, nah. And she's like, dude, <laughs> I'm the. I'm a priestess of a goddess of fertility. Stop mansplaining fertility to me. <laughs> yeah, it's like, Gerald, she's an expert, yeah. man. <laughs> she's a woman. Yeah. She's like, yeah. not only a woman, but like a woman devoted to this specific thing. She's delivered like thousands of children, like probably literally thousands because she's really old. She's, she's known Gerald since he was a child. So she's old too. Uh, beyond normal human lifespan, so yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, you know, you know that GIF where uh, Captain Picard is like face palming. Yeah. She's like doing that internally. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, yes. that's just Nanaki constantly. She's just like there's a certain point where like she Geralt is like, I don't want to tell you about my feelings. Here's all my feelings, and you can just tell she's just like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan and Ludmilla and some other folks here have posted that it, they're probably just talking about Visena, mm. Geralt's mom, who was a sorceress slash druid and still gave birth to Geralt. So that's probably it. Yeah, that's that makes sense. That's probably the fit. I mean, that does kind of contrast if they're talking specifically about Geralt's mother with Nanaki being like, I'm not your mother. I don't have to take care of you. Blah, blah, blah. Mm. Hang on, let me take care of you. <laughs> let me come back here. Sit down. <laughs> yeah. Let me cut your hair. <laughs> 
<laughs> it does flip flop, right? Like when they're in the opposite position, Geralt's like trying to like, yeah, it, like it's like these polar opposites that yeah. keep happening. And he's like, don't it's tell like, me what to do, and then he's like, Nanik, you tell me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> they can never be on the same page. It's either one or the other is trying to help the other. Yeah, she is very protective of the the types of ways she's helped. She's very helpful, but she's not going to help in ways that she doesn't want to help. She's like, I will help you a lot, but only in these very specific ways. Don't don't cross that line. Don't cross these borders. Don't question me, you know, because <laughs> I know my business. <laughs> like it's interesting because Geralt sees the prophecy that she's or the trance that she's pushing for as something destructive. But I think Neneke sees it as something healing. And the thing that Neneke keeps pushing back against is any action that is destructive, right? So, like, mm. Geralt's, like, going out before he's he's ready. And I, I, I think that the idea... Because Geralt would just kill them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that too, yeah. <laughs> but I, I think that idea of, like, the temple of Mwidale and Neneke as its, as its guardian being, like, these kind of avatars of preservation and that that requires backbone and and being steely and not necessarily like just being like nice and, and cozy and whatever I, I i really like that idea and i think that's an interesting way considering the parental themes that continue on in the series i think that's an interesting kind of first step along that path hmm, that's a great take yeah um also I, I mean to add to that too i think it's it's a very classic stereotype here Geralt is like i don't need therapy and the protective mother figures like you should have therapy. And and now in 2020, I, I think the compared to 1993, I think this attitude is a lot. A lot more people are going to take Neneke's side here. Maybe in 1993, yeah. a lot more people were like kind of both sides, some both sides ism. Like Carol's got a point here; he doesn't need that, and he does have maybe some kind of point. He knows himself pretty well, but I still I side with Neneke overall because she's the expert. She's you know she knows these things better than just about anyone. So I would tend to <laughs> go with her take. But there's a little wiggle room. There's a chance she's wrong. You know, there's a chance. You know what's interesting too is is, is Dandelion is kind of <laughs> Carol's psychiatrist. Uh, <laughs> That's true. You know, he he's that other person in, that has. Uh, for right now, at least in the last wish, uh, going forward, obviously we know that he has stronger relationships with other people. But yeah. you know, Dandelion is kind of that person who's trying to get Geralt to open up, and he does, he does. But you know, Dandelion tells him he's stupid. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Essentially, he's like, "Hey, man, like, y- y- listen to me." You know, like you know, Geralt's stubborn. So, yeah. <laughs> So I guess we should talk about Dandelion's conversation as well. Yeah, yeah, that's a really fun one. I love the, uh, I, love, I think it's it's really clever the way it's written and it reminds you, I think that Dandelion's a poet. Like, Sapkowski has to write his dialogue every once in a while. He has to be really evocative and just really eloquent. And quite often he is. And this is a great, good example. This is one of the, the high points of this story, I think, is their dialogue about the world changing. I think it's fantastic. I love that Dandelion is basically like, Geralt, you're the Crocs of witchers, of magical (laughs) pest control. (laughs) You last too long, you do too good a job, and nobody needs a new one, so... That's a good way to put it. I love Dandelion. I, it's his. I love his his variety of excuses. Geralt's like to not go south. And I definitely did not have any idea what was going on with that the first time I read this. I, I just thought his reasons for not wanting to go south were what he said. He's like, yeah, the the mosquitoes 
the heat. Yeah, I don't want to go down there. But like, oh, that south is Sintra. <laughs> that's why he doesn't want to go there. <laughs> right. So that's, to me, that's a major reason why the reread of the story just raised it a lot because of details like that. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> Yeah, so we were, we were kind of thinking about what the themes were um, of this story. And obviously, like, you kind of can't avoid either reason because it's in the title. And it is one of those refrains. But also faith comes up as, as a point of argument between Geralt and Anarchy, like, constantly through the, through the story. And I kind of thought that those things could kind of be married in the idea that, that Geralt raises and that Anarchy raises and that, and that something is ending. You know, because that is also a theme that that will be, play very strongly into the into the upcoming books, and I think it's kind of like the age of both faith and reason, which are often seen as opposites, are coming to an end in the doom that Geralt is avoiding. Ooh. There's a there's a strong kind of disillusionment and irrationality that comes over the continent in in the following books. Not to get too specific, but things get dark and bad and like really mm-hmm. intense. The books are called Baptism of Fire and Time of Contempt. Exactly, I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not like Happy Happy Sunshine Days. Yeah. <laughs> it's really interesting, too, because Lauren Hisrich, the title of the first episode, uh, exactly something begins and then something ends, but also oh, said that's yeah. one of the main themes of the whole series. Yeah. And we're not going to tease too much about that because uh, we are going to cover the main series as well, but it is something that is huge. Keep it in your mind as you read, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. yeah. Maybe this is just me being an English major and just reading a little too much into it, but like the <laughs> the idea of like the greenhouse that like Nanaki says like the the glass is protecting the the plants and the parasitic oyster, flying <laughs> 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 uh, fish, giant oysters. <laughs> what else is? <laughs> Honestly, how how scary does a plant have to be for Geralt of Rivia not to know what it is? I'm just like, oh my god. <laughs> But the idea is that, like, they're protected by this glass from, like, toxic rays. And Geralt's like, shouldn't we all, like, be wearing this stuff? And Nanaki says, like, it's it's too late. And that, to me, also strikes me as, like, something of an ending. Like, the, the, the time of opportunity has passed. We're already corrupted and mm. we're kind of already on this path. It almost it almost acts against what Nanaki is saying, right? Like, she kind of, she's desperate for this trance to kind of, I think, give her answers to a... a question be she wants to protect Geralt from whatever fate that is and mm. even as she's saying she wants that there's there's part of the story that's acknowledging that that's it's too late they can't that that can't happen fate has already started on its path that's what I thought Nanaki smiled you see Geralt this bright sun of ours is still shining but not quite the way it used to Read the great books if you like, but if you don't want to waste time on it, maybe you'll be happy with the explanation that the crystal roof acts like a filter. It eliminates the lethal rays which are increasingly found in sunlight. That's why plants you can't see growing wild anywhere in the world grow here. I understand, nodded the witcher. And us, Nanaki? What about us? The sun shines on us too. Shouldn't we shelter under a roof like that? In principle, yes sighed the priestess. But... But what? It's too late. <laughs> well, foreshadowing <laughs> <Okay>. there. <laughs> yeah. 
By the way, I just want to give Sipkowski some credit for putting climate change in his series in 1993 or so. And that's pretty cool. I got to give him some props for that. Because it's obviously a great, like, not just to get into real world stuff. Like, that's a big thing to, like, a really interesting topic to have in a fantasy world to see how, like, other worlds adapt and change because of it. Not just to, not just because it's relevant to us, too. You know, it's, it's both of those things. So, there's a huge list of, of different types of things. Most of them are made up. Reach cluster and antidote known to every toxin and venom. Some of them describe themselves. Scarix, a root with powerful and universal medicinal qualities. Done. That's it. Melilote normally has, is described as star-leafed. Normally, Melilote has three leaves. So this is a five-leafed version of Melilote. This one's fun. Melilote translates to honey lotus. Lote is lotus. Mela is sweet. Honey lotus, a.k.a. sweet lucerne, sweet clover, king's clover, heart's clover, plaster clover, or wild laburnum. Bees love it. Horses can eat it. In ancient times, juice dropped in the eyes from Melilote cleareth the sight. Mm, also, yeah, the lotus in, in, in uh, Eastern culture is mm-hmm. if you find the middle of the lotus, you seek enlightenment. You get enlightenment, ah. and that was practiced in Buddhism. Oh, so, so that's the cleareth that, the sight. Yeah, that's the same thing. And Melitolote, the temple of Melitolay, uh, temple of uh, enlightenment, perhaps. <laughs> ah. Interesting. Nice. So here's where another uh, piece of story of world building and climate change stuff comes in because he's, he mentions that they mentioned that there's some of the things grown in this room don't grow anywhere else in the world unless there's another greenhouse type place similar to this. Sapkowski included several species that are in the real world threatened by habitat loss. Arenaria, aka sandwort, there's lots of types of sandwort. Some of them are endangered. Cryptocorines, which sounds fake, but is a, AKA water trumpet. It's often, it's, it's put in aquariums a lot. So it's actually quite common. Uh, also in danger. Um, same with uh, one of the other ones. I think um, it doesn't matter. Mousetail orchids. Weed. What's that? Turtle duckweed. <laughs> no, turtle duckweed is definitely not endangered. <laughs> turtle duckweed <laughs> is pond scum. It's uh, so we've all seen that, it's, and it's actually quite incredible. It grows like bamboo, <laughs> and it has high protein content. There is a there is significant effort right now in the scientific community in studying it as a benefit or as a food source. Anyway, there's also hornwort, which is also called coontail. So that's not a great nickname. You've definitely seen it. It's in aquariums all over the place. It looks like a miniature pine tree. So that's there. A liverwort, there's a billion types of liverwort. That's too generic to, to describe. Nematodes is cool because those are little plant-eating roundworms that are, those are being used for creating fertile soil. And puffheads, fast aim, measure me not, saw cut, pond blood, raven's eye, hallucinogenic bitip, and suant <laughs> mushroom uh, appear to all be made up and sound cool. So that's it. That wasn't so bad. (laughs) Had to get my herb lore in there. It's pretty cool. You know when you like, you say to yourself, I learned something today. I learned something today. (laughs) Oh, Aziz, Macro bought a Spurge plant. What? (gasps) That is so cool. Oh my gosh, that's commitment. Ludmilla just keeps getting cooler every time we have a podcast. (laughs) Ludmilla is our new favorite person. (laughs) Will you please post pictures of it in the Facebook group? Assuming they're not NSFW, because actually, chat, um, can you all post pictures of plants in our? We're becoming a plant group. Podcast surprise Facebook. 
The cult of Melitele was one of the oldest and, in its day, one of the most widespread cults from time immemorial. Practically every pre-human race and every primordial nomadic human tribe honoured a goddess of harvest and fertility, a guardian of farmers and gardeners, a patroness of love and marriage. Many of these religions merged into the cult of Melitele. She goes on to explain, or it's explained further, that many other religions have risen and fallen, but this one has persisted. It's explained pretty well. I thought it was a convincing explanation. I mean, fertility, that's human, humanity hasn't moved past the need for that, even now. So that it kind of makes a lot of sense. Uh, Dandelion's explanation is maybe less uh, sophisticated, but probably not entirely without merit either. <laughs> it's like, yeah, well, people do need things to yell out when they're in pain. Why not? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it's, it's a little basic, but he's, he's kind of, there's a little bit of a point there. <laughs> so... That's kind of neat. Um, so yeah, that's going to matter. I more. love that the, the dandelion just goes for like the loudest. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like, well, that's it's an expression. I'm a poet. I mean, I'm of course I'm going to think about these things. <laughs> does, does, does dandelion always on knob eleven? Can we discuss <laughs> <Yes>. that? <laughs> hey, and especially when Geralt hands him a drink that's as strong as the plague. <laughs> They're just. That's his real therapy there, drinking with dandelion. <laughs> Always gets into trouble. <laughs> so we have Geralt sleeps Geralt sleeps with Iola. Yeah, he he's thinking of Yennefer. He just she doesn't look anything like Yennefer. It's really like, wow, you really had to use your imagination there. She has freckles. Yeah. <laughs> it's like he, he still he still smells the lilac and gooseberries. <laughs> he man. just can't get away, yeah. But there's some some extra world building in here that's relevant in a way that ne hasn't necessarily come up. It seems like a small thing, but the idea of magic and virginity and prophecy is actually a recurring theme. Mostly it's superstition, a misconception. It's like there's a lot of people in the Witcher world that seem to believe that virginity is important for magic. And there's only apparently only one exception to that. It's apparently not true except for only one exception, which is mentioned here, which is unicorns. Uh, unicorns are really attracted to or drawn to virgins for some strange reason. Let's <laughs> say trust. Let's use the word trust. They're horny. <laughs> Get oh, it? They're horny. Right. But that seems backwards. <laughs> they should go to the yeah. anyone but the virgin. Anyway. Guys, I'm telling you right now, I'm I'm just staking my flag in the soil. I am not saying the name of that unicorn that comes up later. Okay? Like spoiler, <laughs> there's a unicorn that comes up later. And its name is impossible to pronounce and I will not do it. <laughs> You guys thought I was having a stroke, and I was like, I can't, I just, I can't do that. <laughs> so I like that he kind of undoes that, because it's an old, like, real-world legendary trope, I think. It does certainly, Sapkowski did not invent yes. the unicorns and virgins trope, but he does certainly bash it a bit, to, uh, but le with leaving one little piece. Isn't that in uh, The Lesser Evil, I think? Or when, when Geralt is talking to the worst Stregobor? about, like, virgin's blood. Is that the yeah. thing? He's like, oh, no, we don't actually need just virgin's blood, but we need to make it harder for anyone to, for people to get it. So we just say it's virgin's blood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a few, a few other places that style, that that 
deconstruction of, yeah, no, that's just what we say. Like in this story, Geralt just says, oh, I just tell people I'm from Rivia. I'm not really from Rivia. <laughs> which, which, by the way, it's, makes that funny that in the very first scene of the first book, they are racist towards him because he's Rivian, but it's because of his fake <laughs> accent, not because he's really from Rivia. <laughs> then he proceeds to kill him. Yeah, he's like, I kill you racists. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. I mean, I'm not entirely sad about that, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> a little, little over the top, but not entirely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that's pretty neat that he's that Sapkowski puts all this stuff, this world building in there. Uh, it comes up later. And Geralt is a unicorn in a sense of how uh, unique he is. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. And he too is attracted to Siri in the non-romantic. Oh way. yeah, I mean, like, yeah, it's very true. He's drawn to her, and yeah, completely in a fatherly way. You're right, in a protective drawn. way. That's a That's good. A okay, point. let's make that clear. I was a little bit scared there for a second. <laughs> I was going to have to nuclear nuclearize our podcast. <laughs> no, no, no. I that is not a ship. I ship. I'm sure there are people who ship that ship and ship whatever you ship, but I do not. I ship think that, that ship. is not. Uh, that's an exception to ship whatever you should ship. <laughs> you shouldn't ship that. <laughs> more. There's more detail on it later, so we'll hold off. But Kara Morhen, he points out that's where he, the Witcher School is, where he's the, is called the Kara Morhen School is called the Wolf School, which kind of explains his nickname because he got his. His hair is white, and he's wears a wolf medallion, so he's the white wolf. Right. Ah, very straightforward. Um, it's also, I think, kind of implied, or at least you could imagine, that the type of people that destroyed Karamoran are similar to these, not the exact same people by any means, because this happened so long ago, but these Order of the White Rose types, like these, these guys who get all uppity about, we're in charge, our culture is correct. Religious zealots. And we do learn that it's apparently zealots that destroy Kara Morhen uh, at some point in the past. So feels like a similar sort of application or conceptually similar. It's funny because those people become extinct from Nilfgaard after, which is like kind of the opposite. You know what I mean? Because Nilfgaard yeah. is encroaching upon everyone on the continent. Yes. So, it's, so it's kind of ironic that they're, you know, destroying places like Kara Morhen, like Aziz said, when Nilfgaard is the true enemy. Yeah, speaking of the South, if they go a little farther south, yeah. <laughs> it's like, whoa, <laughs> Centra is south, but Nilfgaard is even farther. Yeah, something something I was thinking of in connection to Kaer Morin is like how fond Geralt is of Vesemir, and obviously later on in the series we see more of this. But he's also talking about like, they fed me all these poisons and they forced me into this and they, you know, it's kind of like, well, was that not Vesemir? Like, was there, mm -hmm. like, there's a very strong sense of, like, an abusive relationship here in that, like, I mean, Vesemir is complicated in that, like, yes, he was a father figure to, to these kids. He was also a father figure to all the ones that died horribly. And he's also dedicated to making sure that witchers continue. Right. Yeah. He's the exactly. one who keeps Karen Morin alive. Yeah, and it's apparently he's apparently like at least like thrice Geralt's age, something like that. It's undetermined, but yeah. So he's been doing it for a while. But you're right to say to point to the to the they in these phrasing, McCall, because yeah, who are the are these just other witchers that are no longer around, or there were some sorcerers involved, or druids, or something like that? Because certainly the origin of witchers involves some of this is explained later in the story, so we won't talk about specifics, but. 
yeah, sorcerer, like sorcerers invented this uh, effectively. The, the first Witcher was an experiment. And so these are all you can see. There's ex- they were continuing to experiment and Geralt is the result of further experimentation, going deeper into this trial of grasses stuff. So he's like the, the pinnacle of, of that and that it's not really a great thing to be as a human being because people call him mutant and he is. When I say it, I don't mean it in a bad way, uh, but certainly those Order of the White Rose folks meant it as a deep insult. You know, what's interesting is we talk about fertility and fertility leading to life and being connected to all, you know, growth. And one thing that's interesting is what we see when Siri and Yennefer become parts of Vesemir's life and Geralt's life is growth from those characters when they experience a strong woman's power and love, right? That changes starts to change things around them when we see the impact of Yennefer, people of Yennefer, like Yennefer and Siri, and the impact on those men. Yeah, for sure. I think it's a real world thing as well. Like if you go back to really, really ancient times, you saw, you see ancient religions were mostly run by women. And then I think the playing out of power games amidst civilizations moved that more towards men being like, we can take that. Well, that's, I mean, not to, not to generalize too much, but that is, I believe, a theory about why women were primarily accused of being witches, because women ha- were still, at the time where, like, witch trials were going on, were still kind of rooted in that idea of you're the one with the spiritual power mm. in the family. You're the one who can mix the potions. You're the one who can, you know, poison your husband. So that concept kind of carried through. It wasn't necessarily that, like, only women can do it, but it, yeah. was, it was rooted, I believe, at least partly in that concept of kind of an eldritch power that women had had access to. And and if we're being like we're getting really real here, having kids is is the most amazing thing any person can do. Like I as a man, I'm blown away that women can do that. So like I can put yourself as a as a, like an ancient person thousands and thousands of years ago when there's very little says like that's impressive. New life comes out of women like that is seems magical. Well, I mean, Mother Earth is a concept for a reason. I just kind of wanted to talk a little bit more about faith and reason. Mikhail made such a great point in the document. It's something that permeates almost all of the stories and definitely continues. Faith and reason are something that continues with Blood of Elves all the way until the end of the series. We are actually talking a little bit about the last book the other night on Wednesday. So it's something that uh, people in chat, if you haven't read that far, it's something that continues um, as uh, as a main theme throughout the series. Re- yeah. Like, re- like reason- reasoning, like m- m- making the right decision, am I, am I right or wrong, my faith in other people and myself. Those are some really big things uh, in the series. And I, I love to, just for, for folks who haven't read through all the way, those who have already know this, but Sapkowski mixes the, his portrayal of academics with, with this world of magic and archaeology and history super well. It's one of my favorite aspects of the story that sets it out from other fantasy. I look forward to going through that with my co-hosts and with y'all as well. Yeah. Cal, did you have another point on themes, lore, or any of that? No, I have nothing else smart to say. <laughs> oh, now we'll go much. into the funny section with all of our favorite <laughs> quotes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
My deepest respects, venerable mother, he whines stupidly. Praise be the great Melitele and her priestesses, the springs of virtue and wisdom. Stop talking bullshit, snorted Nanaki, and don't call me mother. The very idea that you could be my son fills me with horror. <laughs> he whined stupidly. <laughs> That's so good. That's like one of those things that you're not supposed to tell the audience, but like, <laughs> it just works. <laughs> he does that. Like, there's a couple other spots where he does that. Like, he gurgled more gurglingly, like, at one point. Like. <laughs> and it's usually associated with dandelion's idiocy. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, this is another good one. I ride on and I'm getting hungrier and hungrier. I ask around for work. Certainly it's there, but what work? To catch a rasalka for one man, a nymph for another, a dryad for a third. They've gone completely mad. The villagers are teeming with girls, but they want humanoids. Another asked me to kill a mechopterin and bring him a bone from its hand because crushed and poured into a soup it cures impotence. That's rubbish, interrupted Dandelion. I've tried it. It doesn't (laughs) strengthen anything and it makes the soup taste like old socks. (laughs) I've tried it. (laughs) I've tried it, he says. Oh He's God. so pissed about it. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Does you, Dandelion, have impotence? <laughs> I think it's I think it's Dandelion who says it, that wisdom yeah. and inspiration are still to be found in libraries <laughs> when he pulls out the, the wine. Yeah. <laughs> Geralt and Dandelion drinking together is always dangerous. That, yes, that is awesome, though. <laughs> Pure wet count up by one. Oh, oh yeah. yes, I wanted to know. Finally, we have another pair of wets. I was like, wet. this is going to be a thing. We're going to keep track. <laughs> I was going to do a pirouette, and then I saw the future like I all had my whole <laughs> computer set was going to be destroyed. <laughs> also, uh, the, the 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 name ties. Uh, Thai. I think it's French. Thai, as in Thai. 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 Yeah. Oh. I, I don't know if that's a pronunciation, but it looks like it's looking French to me as my French self. Okay. So. Well, I'm American. I say tailors. <laughs> Only speak American. <laughs> Walls. Tailors. Tailless. Ties. He's tailless. He has no tail. <laughs> Ties was writhing on the ground, spitting blood, whimpering and wailing. He didn't look pleased in the least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Fal- and then Dennis Cranmer's like, nope, not doing that. And Falwick yells, Cranmer, you'll be sorry for this, I swear. And Cranmer's like, no, nah, don't perjure yourself. <laughs> Don't purge yourself. No, I will not be sorry for this. I love, I love Cranmer. It's great. He's our first dwarf that we meet, right? I think, yeah, I think so. And uh, minor spoiler, we do see Dennis Cranmer again. Mm-hmm. And then we have uh, another one of these. And the scar? For a night, a scar is a commendable reminder. A reason for fame and glory, which the chapter so desired for him. A night without a scar is a prick, not a knight. Ask him, Count, and you'll see that he's pleased. And that's when we get Tyus was writhing on the ground, spitting yeah. blood, whimpering and wailing. He didn't look pleased in the least. <laughs> Here is a fantastic little anecdote that I discovered by accident last night. President Obama went to Poland in 2014 uh, and he met with Prime Minister Donald Tusk. And one of, and of course, when these big world leaders meet, they always give gifts. And one of the gifts given 
to President Obama was a signed copy of The Last Wish. Yeah, how about that? I'm guessing he probably didn't read it. But if he did, (laughs) that would be so cool. Well, he opened it, and then he was like, she rubbed her breasts over... Oh, never mind. (laughs) He's like, all right, never mind. (laughs) Or he's like, wait. (laughs) So yeah, that's uh, pretty much going to do it for our analysis today. It's really, it's really awesome that we've we've got so far and we finished the last wish. Yeah, we have. We'll have some more Yennefer in the next story. That's great. Oh, yes. Yennefer and Dan. Stories are a bit more wackier. There's yeah. a little bit more magic, a little bit more craziness. Probably more humor, yeah. I think, too. Yeah. It's just more. It's more of itself. It comes into its own a little more. And more, more creatures, yeah. really. Which is great yeah. for the podcast because we Me love too. to laugh. Obviously. <laughs> 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 yes, we do. So uh, we want to thank everyone for joining. Of course, we want to invite you to our Facebook group. We do uh, we do threads like Aziz will usually put up a thread or I'll put up a thread or Mikhail will put up a thread and we talk about uh, before the podcast and after the podcast. So we try to, we don't just talk about uh, the books, by the way. We talk, me and Ryan will put game posts up there, talk about The Witcher 3. We'll talk about the TV show on there. So we'd like to invite anyone that hasn't joined our Facebook group. You can find the link and uh, come hang out with us. We're usually chatting on there and we give all of our updates uh, for our next podcast and what we're doing. And we love to, of course, get feedback from all of you on how we can improve the podcast and have more fun and, and uh, entertain you guys more. Thank you, everybody. A big thank you to Marley, Andrew G, Ryan B, Sam D, James G, and Anonymous for the support on Anchor and to everyone else who's supported live chat liked and subscribed, upvoted, all those different things left. If you leave us a review on iTunes, that's super helpful, especially when we're still pretty small like this. We, we hope to be a little less smaller in the long run. But hey, if we stay small, that's cool too, because it's, it's all in good fun no matter what. Yeah, exactly. And uh, like I said, we'll be continue doing this and uh, we'll give you all of our updates on social media. We really, really appreciate you. If you do want to support the podcast, you can hit that support button on Anchor, the link to our sponsor's webpage for the podcast. Thank you, everyone. We really appreciate you. Bye.